Hello Cross Connection, Pastor Mark here. I'm the executive pastor at the church and this week, Pastor Miles is taking some well-deserved uh, R&R and he's asked me to pick up where he left off in Nehemiah chapter two. And so today we're gonna be in verses 11 through 20. If you have your Bibles out and you're ready to go. And so let's pray and invite the Lord to join us and teach us uh, by his Holy Spirit. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to go through this book. And Lord, uh, uh, a story, Lord, that has such impact on us today and as we struggle with challenges in our own nation, Lord. And so, uh, Father, I ask that you'd lead us and teach us, Lord. Um, help us to uh, listen intently to what you would have to say to us, Lord. Uh, Father, we ask for your hand to be upon us, upon us Lord. Uh, we ask you to teach our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One thing you need to just acknowledge in this is that this is a Jewish story. It is unique to the Jewish people. And so many times it gets appropriated for other things, building projects and things like that. And this is a, uh, a story of the cause and effect of uh, the Jewish people's obedience uh, to the covenant made in Deuteronomy. And so uh, God is going to take a nation that is just really in peril and he's going to use a man, Nehemiah, to help restore the covenant of Deuteronomy. And it's a process. Um, Nehemiah has this experience and uh, to the best of my knowledge, Nehemiah had never visited uh, Jerusalem. He had never been there. It wasn't like he was going to restore his hometown or he had fond memories. It was simply him sitting at the feet of the Lord and praying and God stirring his heart and asking questions about basically uh, the temple and, and questions about Jerusalem and how the people were faring. They were on his heart. It was a burden and I believe it was put there by God. And so he's answering this call and he's answering this burden and he has this unique experience with God where he needs to fulfill this mission. And so this story, um, if we're not careful, we can, we can look at it and look at that they're just restoring a wall, they're restoring buildings, they're restoring a way of life, they're restoring a nation. It's more than that. This, this is really the process of how a covenant is restored. Not because God did not keep his end of the deal, but because God's people had not kept theirs. And so they, all the promises in Deuteronomy, if they didn't do the things they were supposed to do and they went after foreign gods, all those promises had come true. And so we're going to witness part of the restoration of the covenant between God and Israel. Um, the overview of this is Nehemiah is a cupbearer and he's in Babylon and he works for the king, uh, King Artaxerxes. And, you know, though some people think that'd be a bad job, I don't know, being a cupbearer. I mean, you know, obviously if uh, people are going to poison the king, it could go really bad for you. But on the other hand, if people know that the king has a cupbearer and he's famous, then people probably aren't going to try that because you don't want to, you know, have an epic fail and knock off the cupbearer and get charged with death for both the cupbearer and attempting to kill the king. So it could be a pretty good job, uh, depending on, you know, what the reputation was. And so uh, certainly the living uh, standards were pretty decent being in the palace and you got to be around some very powerful people. And uh, you were looked at as an advisor and a friend many times. So Nehemiah is in this position. And we know from chapter one and two that um, when the time comes for him to give the answer, 
uh, he is prepared uniquely to give the answer to the king and the king of what's wrong. And when he kind of spills his guts um, and he talks about the condition of Jerusalem in particular, uh, his conviction and his preparing for over four months in prayer, it comes out and he gets the king exactly perfect timing at the right time. And the king says yes to his request. And so he has sent out and in a, by a miracle, he has sent out to go on this mission to research and to do, to restore uh, Jerusalem. And so what is going on? Um, this is the third run really at making uh, Jerusalem great again, so to speak. Um, there's a Zerubbabel, I believe is how it's said, uh, made the first run at this and restored part of it, along with uh, Ezra also made a run at this uh, under the blessing of King Artaxerxes. Uh, so the temple is built, even though it's lamenting that some people say it's not as great as it used to be, but the temple is unprotected. So they really can't bring all the artifacts in and, and worship God properly with all these things because the temple gets ransacked. It has no defenses. And so the people living around uh, there are discouraged. They're despondent. Uh, the work has been going on approximately 100 years and just not as much progress probably as, as they think should happen. And so they're defeated. And so there are people that is, um, they're not doing well. They're discouraged. And the broken walls and the rubble are just symbols. Um, they're physical symbols of what's going on spiritually. And what's going on spiritually in, in Nehemiah clearly repents of this, uh, both of himself and the people. He takes the falling away of the covenant in Deuteronomy. He takes that on himself and he apologizes to God for that. And so when we see the rebuilding of the relationship and the rebuilding of the temple, I believe the rubble and the walls, while very practical, are also largely symbolic of the hard work sometimes of what it takes to rebuild relationship. Uh, not on God's part, but on our part. Um, we're looking at the restoration of a covenant. So God stirs Nehemiah's heart and gives him to the desire to fix both the physical and the spiritual state of his people. So since this is not our story and our country and our neighborhoods are not specifically in the Bible, they're not in the Old Testament here, and um, they're not, this story is not talking about us, and we certainly can't try to make the Jew story our story because it's not. Uh, but what can we take away from this story that is beneficial? Why are we reading this book? We're going to learn something from a story that is not ours. What should the righteous person's reaction be? A person who loves and follows God, what should the righteous person's reaction be to the state of affairs in our place, the place we live, our neighborhood, our state, our country? Uh, the things we, we see in media, the things we interact with and the people we interact with on, day, on a day-to-day -day basis, what should our reaction be to our fallen world? So let's pull out our Bibles and we're going to start in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, starting in verse 11. Please read along with me. It says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put on my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuge gate 
and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. So it must have been quite a scene and must have been a, had a lot of people talking. And on one hand, Nehemiah rolls in and the lumber trucks are there and, and obviously there's equipment and there's people and something is going on. There's supplies, so he's up to something. But then he quietly surveys the situation. He goes out at night as to not attract attention. He only takes a, a very small band of people with him. He took uh, one animal so as not to attract a lot of attention. Um, possibly it was some of the engineers that he was going to be working with, or maybe there was part of his inner circle that knew the plan. I, I, I don't know what, how that worked. But we know that it was kept very small and it was very quiet. And it must have been quite a scene um, to go to these places you've heard of and perhaps never even have seen them. I believe he never saw them. And for the first time, to see the failure of the people was complete and the rubble and the destruction of a once great city. And Nehemiah goes through this part of the city and he sees all this and his heart has got to be just humbled. The scene has to be completely sobering for him. It has to be emotional. Um, and not only does he see a city in ruins, but as he is there three days, and I, I believe he's probably, with his character, probably talking to people uh, or asking questions or viewing the people. But I know he was praying because he was a man of prayer. It says that he prayed for over four months before he even started uh, this whole story, before he addressed the king. He sees a downcast, defenseless people, uh, people that could be robbed at any time. They were unprotected. And it has to break his heart because it calls him to action. And the one word that I can think of is sobering. He is so sobered in his thought that he's thinking of the intentions of God and what God has for his people. And that's not a bad place. Point one in your outline, we must assess and react to the state of our world with a sober mind. Um, throughout the Bible, where it's, it, especially in the New Testament, we are cautioned, we are encouraged to have a sober mind. Uh, Titus 2.6 says, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. What should our reaction be to a broken world with broken people? Now, just so happens is I got a email today from the California Fish and Game. I'm drawing my deer tags this year. And, um, I've been doing that, and they congratulated uh, me that, you know, it was going to be Father's Day and Pride Month. We were going to celebrate those two things. And boy, what a combination to have together, to get in a text from the state, or excuse me, an email from the state. And it really, it got me to thinking. 
Um, what, when I hear of Pride Month, uh, what does that stir up in me as a believer, uh, as a man who wants to be righteous? What should that stir up at me? Um, I think of Pastor Billy Graham's uh, quote when asked about the condition of America. And I think so many times we're conditioned to think that everything in America is pretty good. It's just a few crazy people that are causing all the trouble. And he says, when he starts to name off all the sins of America, and this quote will never leave me, but he says, if God does not judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. A very powerful statement from still to this day, even after his death, uh, polls show that he is one of the most respected and admired men uh, in recent history. How do we be righteous and think righteously, but don't fall into sin when it comes to sin? As we look around the landscape of what's going on in our news, we, we hear about things that are just, according to biblical standards, are an abomination. How do we react to that? How should we react to it? And when we react, does it become us versus them? Or is it a reaction that is full of empathy? Knowing that somewhere deep inside, these people that are doing things that are an abomination to the Lord, that God loves them and desires for them to live a life that honors Him and to walk with Him and one day go and be with Him. And that's part of the job of the church. How do we react to that? Sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness to explain that, uh, many would think that means just do not be using drugs or alcohol, those things, and those certainly fall into those characters, but into that characteristic. But sober-mindedness, if you look it up, literally means in both the biblical definition and just if you go to the Webster's and you look it up, it means to not be under the influence of anything. And if I was to say that one of the convictions that we have, myself included with the modern church at times, is that we are under the influence of time uh, at times. Um, I have to say that in the last few years it's been very disappointing to see that the drug of choice, so to speak, the alcohol of choice for us as the church, um, where we are not sober-minded, where we are drunken and we're not thinking straight, is in the area of politics. It seems to be um, one of the things that is splitting and causing division in the church, and it is ruining the church uh, in many aspects. It's causing division. Uh, it's taking away the peace and the unity of the church. And the sad thing is, is we, many of us were looking to come up with a solution with politics to a spiritual God-sized problem. And in doing that, we're actually dishonoring God. We're actually turning away from God. And we're saying that this is the solution. It's sad because if we were to be sober-minded, if we were to think like God, we were to be have perfect clarity when we uh, address these problems and issues, we take these political parties and these political figures, if we were to look at them in, with a sober mind, I could be really honest with you. I, there is not a president in recent memory for me that meets the qualifications 
of being an elder at Cross Connection Church. Yet I can look out on a Sunday and I can see literally dozens of people who meet those qualifications. But the people that we think are going to solve this problem if we just elect that person or elect this person somehow are going to solve this God-sized problem in our own country. If we look to them and we think they're the solution to the problem, we have it wrong because those are not the men and women that God called and said that they are going to fix this problem. This is a God-sized problem. Nehemiah is a sober-minded person. He is thinking of the task at hand with God's mission in mind. He um, is not posting on social media, stirring up arguments, uh, going down political rabbit trails. Uh, he's actually a man of action. And he's actually a man of God. And you can tell that. There's a, a peace and a calm to his spirit as he's addressing some pretty tense, intense situations. He is not um, just bathed in God's word and bathed in uh, loving the Lord. He's marinated in it. It is seeped into his soul and it is who he is. Um, it's a challenge to watch as Christians are distracted and we... We think we're going to solve something by sending an inflammatory uh, post out or, or a text out to people. And that's really not what God is looking for, in my opinion. Um, he's going, a guy like Nehemiah, or a woman who's like Nehemiah, they are going to get their hands dirty. They are people of action and not words. They are doers of the word. They are not just hearers. They are not repeaters. They are doers of the word. They're going to put God's power to the problem. And we're going to talk about that problem. Recently, I saw a video with Andy Stanley, and he was talking about the condition of the church in America. And I thought it was rather interesting that he stated that um, many of the people had gone to more political organizations uh, instead of the church that they were in and happy with until now, that the church wasn't political enough for them. And it was sad. And Andy Stanley made a very um, striking comment. And I think he assessed it well. And he said, everything on the far left and everything on the far right sells. It stirs people up. It piques people, people's interest. It tickles their ears. It gets them excited. But there's no solutions in the far left and there's no solutions on the far right. The solutions are in the middle. And it's not that it's lukewarm or that it's done halfway. It's that the solutions are made in the middle where there is agreement. That's where God is. And where we, as those right people on the right, people on the left, move towards God, we move to a solution. But we're not there. And so we're going to see how Nehemiah is that kind of a man. He did not get distracted by opinions on the right or opinions on the left. Let's read Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set up their hands to do this good work. Point two in your outlines, the testimony of God's people 
should be God's good work, not one of reproach. Reproach is an interesting word. It basically means disappointment. You see, the very purpose of God having a covenant with a certain people, in this case it's the Hebrew people, the Jews, was that they would be an example to all the nation. Um, they would literally be known when they talked about their God, they would say the people of the other nations would say the God of the Hebrews or the God of the Jews, but the God of the Hebrews. And the God of the Hebrews was quite famous in the Old Testament. And even the pagans knew that there was a God of the Hebrews. Uh, Deuteronomy 7 verses uh, 6 through 8, God lays out what he expects of his people. He says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." The Hebrew people were to be an example of what happens when a group of people are obedient and they walk in the ways of the covenant of God. They were to be a model. People were to look at them and see their success and their protection, their conquest, uh, how their God was always part of their victories. People were to look at that as an example. People also knew that in their failures that they were unprotected. Um, that God would turn their back on them. Uh, all the promises of, our, of the um, Deuteronomic covenant would also come to true, the negative ones, that uh, they would be taken away and uh, they would experience loss and they would experience captivity. And so all the nations around them knew this. Now, Nehemiah is a good leader, very good leader. And he does something that's very important here. He uses some words here. And you notice this, he says, uses for reproach, he says, we and us. So it's personal. He's not saying they and them. He's taking the responsibility for the people's actions, even though he wasn't part of the original crowd of people that started to draw away and, um, and worship other gods, worship idols. He took responsibility and blame and he formed a bond with the people as he was speaking with them because he was demonstrating what went on with the covenant and it was their reproach, not somebody else's reproach. He didn't blame it on anybody. He could have very well said, you know, those stinking Babylonians, look what they did to us. He could have blamed it on the conquerors, but he plainly acknowledged it was their reproach. Repro reproach literally means disappointment that they disappointed God, and so they fulfilled the negative parts of the Deuteronomic covenant. And so he addresses them with our reproach, and so he had an immediate connection. He put himself in that same place of disappointment and discouragement. Um, they were able, he was able to communicate with them, and so they had an affinity for what he had to say. Now, take a quote from one of my favorite movies, Maverick says, we need two miracles. And that's what had to happen to make this story um, a victory, so to speak. 
Nehemiah needed two miracles. The first miracle was, is that the king had to send him on the journey. That was the beginning of the miracle. The king had to ask the question. The king had to send him away with a blessing and uh, give him the power and the tools to be able to make this happen. So the physical needs, so to speak, were met. The, the practical needs were met. But the second thing that had to happen was, is the people, the people who would do the work, the very people that God wanted that covenant restored for, they had to want to build those walls. They had to want to restore and get back into a right relationship with God. That had to be their heart's desire. And as a pastor, I know how hard that can be sometimes to motivate people to get into that relationship because so much of it has to come from within. They need to be looking at their surroundings and their predicament and be looking towards God for answers. But I also know that part of that is being able to have empathy for people and understand uh, being in that position at one time and to be able to have a connection to them in that. And so Nehemiah is making that connection. And so the second miracle was what I think the greatest miracle of all that I've ever seen in the ministry, the greatest miracle of all is when somebody's heart changes and they give their life to the Lord. And many of us experience that miracle, that a man's heart would change, or a woman's heart would change, and take all everything they value, everything that they feel is important, and they would lay it at the feet of the cross. And they would begin to do things God's way and be sober-minded uh, to change their life. That is a miracle. And that miracle happens in these people. And it takes them out of despair, despondency, depression, whatever you want to call it, a bad situation of 100 years of this, this long, slow spiritual root canal for uh, uh, the people. It takes them out of that and they start to get hope and they start to have a focus and they start to um, want to restore the covenant. Now, further on in the series, we'll get a little bit more into this, but we are given a covenant, you and I, and that covenant is uh, the marriage covenant. That's one we're allowed to enter into. And it's a promise between, uh, in my case, myself, my wife, and God. It's part of that covenant. And there, it's a pretty serious covenant. God takes it very seriously, and, and we should too. God always gives us natural things to demonstrate spiritual things. And so as we continue to go through the book of the Nehemiah, I think you're going to hear that coming up about marriage because it has so many elements that have to do with this. There's rubble in marriage. Uh, there's breaking of covenants. There's forgiveness, the hard work of restoring covenants. There's all those components. So be thinking of that as we go through the book of uh, Nehemiah. Now, we turn to... Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. You see, what happens when God's people start to turn, when things actually start to happen, uh, when there's physical evidence? Well, we're going to see that. It says in verse 19, But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. 
but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. He told it like it was. Point three on your outline. This is one of my favorite quotes, and I think about this uh, many times uh, over the years. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. One of my favorite bumper stickers, sometimes you're reminded uh, of things from a bumper sticker. One of my favorite bumper stickers says, a green environment starts in your own front yard. Well, there's a great deal of truth to that um, in the Christian life. You see, we know that when the church, and in this case, God's people, are defeated and they're not doing anything, um, nobody really cares or notices that much. Maybe take an occasional jab or make fun, but um, nobody really notices that much. But when God's people unite, uh, they arise, they begin to do the good work, um, all of a sudden the enemies of God surface and they start to uh, disrespect, uh, despise. They start to start rumors. They start to say that there's things going on with uh, uh, that that are motivations that are in our heart that just simply aren't true. And so um, for the lesson for us is, if we look at it, is there's different stages in a Christian's life. And uh, the enemy is particularly uh, involved with not wanting us to come to Christ, obviously, and, and that's a battle. But after we've come to Christ, um, that battle is over, and so the enemy's tactics uh, change, I believe. And so if we can be a sleepy Christian, if we can be a do-nothing Christian, and it's very possible to fall into that uh, type of mindset, uh, we're in a place that actually the enemy's quite comfortable with because he's going to take second best. And while uh, he might not send you to hell, he sure can make you ineffective, sleepy, not doing anything. And... You can come to a church, you know, two, three times a month. You can put an offering in the bucket as it goes by. You can attend a Bible study once a week. Uh, you can read your Bible and you can be an ineffective, sleepy Christian because you're not necessarily doing anything outside of your own sphere. And there's so many things we can be engaged in to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And so we can have the sleepiness about us. And this is not a time in our country uh, in this time period where we can be sleepy Christians and we should not be able to be sleepy Christians and uh, be able to live with ourselves, so to speak. We should have some conviction about what we're doing or not doing. I believe we're in a time where God wants players. He wants people on the field. He wants his people on the field. He's not looking for fans. And so as we consider this, remember that this is a personal call. Uh, a nation is not going to be saved or transformed um, by events or things like that. A nation is going to be transformed the same way the gospel was trans given to other people. And that is, it's going to be transformed by one person at a time. The personal conviction that 
people need Christ and they're willing to follow Christ. And you and I are the players, the people on the field, so to speak, that are going to do that. And we're going to do that one person at a time. How do you do that? Gosh, that seems like a, a pretty big call. Um, it's uncomfortable. Uh, it puts us in a position where we might be despised or made fun of or might be accused of things. And I would suggest to you that it starts very small and it's actually quite natural. Your position today is that you're a mom and you're home and you're teaching your kids and you're pouring into them. You're doing a work right now. Um, we do not need to sit in a pulpit or talk to a thousand people to be doing the work of the Lord. It might be that um, you find one person uh, to take under your wing. That could be the kid down the street that maybe doesn't have a dad that uh, has never been fishing or hunting or taught how to ride a skateboard or build a kite or um, fix a car, uh, guys. Uh, that may be the girl down the street, single, you know, parent family who doesn't know how to cook or uh, pick out clothes or do all these things. She's maybe just, just has a dad. And, and so maybe there's a lady that could get involved in that and, and do that. There's, there's the person down the street maybe that you never got to talk to and didn't notice or in your apartment complex that um, is considering an abortion because um, they're so afraid and it's going to be so inconvenient and it's going to be so expensive, as drastic as that. Maybe you're the person that's willing to jump in there financially and, and coach that person, encourage that person um, to not do something that later they'll be sorry for. Um, the opportunities to minister to people, um, to be sober-minded, to do the things that God would will for us and to uh, exhibit His heart and have a testimony uh, to the people are limitless. It just requires that we be out there and we be doing it. Now, I guarantee there's a strong possibility that you're going to be laughed at for that, that you could be despised for that. Uh, you could be accused of having the wrong, the wrong motives. You know, you're trying to be a goody two-shoes or, you know, a public servant or whatever. People can say things about you. I would encourage you to take this thought into captivity and really just dwell on it, marinate on it. Um, because Nehemiah had a good answer for his accusers. And I think it would be wise to give the same answer as Nehemiah uh, himself gave to his accusers. And he talks about the God of heaven himself. Um, he says, I answered them and said, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial. I think the, the modern day version of that for you and I is when we are calling into account to give a reason for the hope that lies within us is that our God in heaven requires it of us. Um, we do it to bring people to him. I thank you so much. I pray that... Um, as you study this book, that it is a treasure to you, that it is a guide to you, that you're either convicted and encouraged to action, uh, perhaps you're affirmed by this book this morning. Um, I pray that you are living a blessed week. Go with God. Until next week, amen.